Well, all right. Thank you, worship team, and uh, good morning, church. Take your Bibles and find the book of Jonah. It's tiny, so you have to, have to either look it up in the index or find it among what we sometimes call the minor prophets, not because they are less important, but because they are simply smaller than some of the other prophets we call major. The book of Jonah. When I was in the Philippines last month, I was, uh, of course, noticing everything that was so different about being in another culture, another part of the world. At the same time, I was so struck by how much the same it is to fellowship with Christians. Uh, they, they, they might come from a different culture and, and you drive down the streets and the houses are different. But when you get together with, with believers who are committed to Christ, there is this bond and this kinship. And as I was with the staff and students at Word of Life Bible Institute there, I really sensed that. Uh, because of my time there, I had the chance to uh, add a lot of friends on Facebook. That's always the goal, right? But... Uh, but uh, some of those uh, friends, as I was watching students and staff over the last several weeks, I was able to see some of the ministries that they were involved in over the holidays, different things at their churches, different youth camps. And it was just exciting to me to see how they were taking their faith so seriously and, and, and making sure they can do everything they could, even during that season of time, to reach people with the gospel. And it reminded me of the fact that God is always in the process of communicating His grace and His amazing gospel through Jesus Christ. And so that years ago, when I was a little boy in Kansas, God made sure that through my family I would hear the gospel. And you have your personal story of how God came to expose the gospel truth to you. And it's what we are doing here. It's what God is doing in the Philippines and other places of the world. It is what God is doing. As we come to the book of Jonah, we uh, find as well that God is going to be expressing his desire for people to come to a saving knowledge of himself. But we meet Jonah, who did not share that desire. A prophet of God who so deeply disliked the people of Nineveh, he refused to be a part of communicating the grace of God that God was specifically calling him uh, to do. As we uh, introduce the book this morning and take a look at the opening verses, we're going to discover that Jonah's real problem was that he was ignoring the character of God. Are our actions or inactions always go back to what we believe about God? And we see that he was ignoring two key traits about God. One is his compassion, God's compassion. The other is God's omnipresence. Omnipresence. Let's read verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish, 
to flee, to get away from the Lord. What he was ignoring, I believe here, is that God wanted to actually show his compassionate love and grace for the Ninevites. And Jonah didn't want that. Jonah is a unique book among the prophets. It's the only uh, prophet, uh, uh, prophetic book of the Old Testament that doesn't have really any prophecy in it. Whereas most of the prophetic books, whether it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the lesser known, Nahum or Amos or whatever, most of them are mostly prophecy, you know, God's message to different people, and very little about the story of that prophet himself. This book is all about this particular season and story of what happened in Jonah's life. And so it's kind of a special and unique book, short book, to describe this important lesson that God had for him as well as uh, for us. Some have said that this book of the Bible must be an allegory or or, or could not be literal, uh, primarily because of the amazing uh, best-known part of the story that this great fish swallowed Jonah and he somehow survived and came out alive. Now, the assumption of those who say this could not be literally true, the assumption is that God doesn't do miracles. Um, I hope this isn't a newsflash, but God's doing miracles all the time. The Bible is a book of miracles. And so if, as indeed God did, raise Jesus from the dead, the greatest miracle, and if God indeed is, 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 has promised to raise us from the dead and give us eternal life, then to simply you know, preserve the life of Jonah for three more days in the belly of a fish is obviously no greater miracle than the resurrections. One of the greatest proofs of the historicity of Jonah would be that Jesus himself clearly expressed uh, his, his, uh, his view that Jonah was a real guy and this really happened. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 12. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet, a real man. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In fact, you see that Jesus makes a connection between the miracle of of Jonah's life being preserved in the great fish and his own life being raised actually from the dead uh, after the cross. Jesus believed that Jonah was a real prophet and this really happened. We know one other historical fact about Jonah other than that we would find in this uh, book, and that is that he is mentioned in 2 Kings as uh, one little snippet of his other prophetic ministry. It's when he was prophesying something to the king of northern Israel uh, named Jeroboam. And when you find Jeroboam, it's really Jeroboam II. There had been an earlier Jeroboam when the kingdom of Israel had split into the north and the south. In the 15th year of Amaziah, which is Uzziah of Judah, the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, the northern uh, part. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, son of Amittai. Clearly the same man, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Does that sound historical and, and, and factual? Of course it does. 
he was he was had a hometown and he had a particular ministry and he spoke to the king and it's it's fascinating to realize that uh, Jonah prophesied to northern Israel during a rare time of prosperity in northern Israel as we've at various times in even in our recent series in Isaiah talked about the northern and the southern kingdoms you may recall that the northern kingdom of Israel during a couple of centuries of division the northern kingdom had all evil kings 19 evil kings Jeroboam was one of those kings and yet God chose to bless Israel during that time and in fact to restore it's actually to expand the borders of Israel to its greatest extent ever during the reign of that wicked king. And then God chose Jonah to bring this good news to a bad king. It's really a remarkable uh, ministry that Jonah got to be a part of. So often when, when God sent prophets to either the north or the south, it was so often about judgment. It's, it was so often woe to you uh, or else kind of thing. But Jonah got to come and bring good news. Jeroboam, you're going to expand the borders of Israel. I mean, Jeroboam must have been popular. I wonder if Jonah was popular, having brought such good news. But in spite of that prosperity, we all know that prosperity does not necessarily parallel spiritual strength, does it? And so it was probably just less than a decade or maybe a little more than a decade that the prophet Amos came along and to the same king at the same time during the same season of prosperity rebukes Jeroboam and Israel. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs. In other words, there's this, there's this, this time to just go enjoy things. To the sound of the harp and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph being a way of making reference to the northern kingdom where Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Jonah, were, uh, jo- Joseph, were part of that part. And so, in the midst of prosperity, there was actually what kind of ruin? Spiritual ruin. And we, we must be careful not to confuse prosperity as necessarily being an indication of God's blessing. Okay? You can be in a time of prosperity and yet be in a time of spiritual ruin. That was the case here. And so Amos had to bring that sobering message at the same time. They were were proud, selfishly proud of their prosperity, not humbly grateful. And they were indulgent, not repentant in this time. And so if that's how Israel was doing during this season... How was Assyria doing? And I mentioned Assyria as essentially synonymous uh, throughout this this study with Nineveh because Nineveh is actually the capital city of the the nation of Assyria. So they are essentially uh, one and the same. It was Assyrians to which God called Jonah to go and, and preach. Well, this was a rare time for them because this is actually a time when the Assyrian Empire was suffering. 
Historically, we don't have a scriptural reference for this, but historically, there was a season in which they were suffering from raids from their northern neighbor, the kingdom of uh, Urartu, who was pushing down and, and giving them pressure and defeat, and there were some internal problems. And in fact, that time of hardship might explain, if you know the rest of the story of Jonah, might explain why the, the, the city of Nineveh was open to the message of warning that Jonah eventually shared with them and did come to repentance. Because so many times it's in hardship that hardened people will actually respond to God. And so if you picture the circumstances of Jonah in this time, it was going well for him. He had maybe one of the the, the most desirable opportunities as a prophet to bring good news instead of bad. And the enemy of Israel, Assyria, was was suffering. And so Jonah may have been experiencing popularity, reward, and honor as a prophet. And meanwhile, he's feeling maybe a bit smug that the Assyrians are doing badly. I think we can have peace now because they are really uh, uh, on their heels. That made Jews happy. Everything is going Jonah's way, it seems, until Jonah 1 verse 1 starts. And God shows up with another message, a prophetic ministry for Jonah and says, Go. Preach against Nineveh. What was the message that Jonah was to take? When you see that it says that he is supposed to preach against the city for its wickedness, it sounds like he's going to be preaching a message of judgment, which you might say, well, wouldn't Jonah like that? Because he so disliked Nineveh and the Assyrians. Surely he would like to come and proclaim God's destruction upon them for their wickedness. But that wasn't it, actually. You might say, well, well, maybe Jonah refused to go because um, of his fear. These were, the Syrians were very cruel. Whenever they took over, they, they just slaughtered people. Maybe he went there out of, he, he didn't want to go because of fear. We could almost understand that. Why was it that he didn't want to go? Turn ahead to chapter 4. It's okay if you know the whole book and the, the whole story. So this is a spoiler. Because eventually Jonah goes, eventually Nineveh Nineveh repents. But here's what we find out about this opening scene in Jonah from chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry, that is, when they they, uh, repented. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So the reason uh, Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh with a message of judgment is because he knew the character of God was that God had grace up his sleeve. Because God warns people because of his love. God confronts us in our sin because he wants to show us his grace. Those he loves are those he will rebuke. And so Jonah could see through because of what he did know about the character of God that God wanted to show grace and Jonah didn't want to show grace. 
it, it, it's a bad thing when you are differing with God's desire. So Jonah recognized the compassion. Jonah turns around and does the exact opposite of what God calls him to do. This is the true tension, though, of the book of Jonah, and really the true lesson is that God wanted something different than Jonah. So we have to ask ourselves, what does God want? What does God want to do through Open Door Bible Church? Do we think ahead to, to the year 2019? What does he want to do? Are we sharing the heart of God? For our community, for our personal relationships, are we on the same page? Do we see ourselves as working with God to bring the grace of God to the people in our lives? Do we share his heart for those who are lost? Do we share his heart if it's about people who are evil? Do we share his heart if it's about people who are very different than us, that we don't naturally like, we may dislike. Do we share his heart if it's about people who actually are so different they oppose us and what we believe? What is our heart for them? Because we're discovering here what God's heart is. While I was in the Philippines, I was reading personally through the book of Isaiah, and it was some great timing as... uh, I noticed over and over in the book of Isaiah how many times there is reference to God's love for the Gentiles, specifically for the islands. <laughs> uh, some translations call it the coastlands. But I was in the Philippines at that moment as a nation of, like they say, 7,000 islands. God cares for the islands. Here's one of those verses. God's loving plan to reach Gentiles everywhere in Isaiah 42. Here is my servant. This is in a section where uh, Isaiah is prophetically referring to Jesus, who would come 700 years later. Uh, Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations in his teaching, Jesus. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. I will make you, referring to Jesus, to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And so God's passion has been to get the gospel around the world. We can go back to uh, what we see as as our purpose of making disciples, going to the great commission of, of, of Matthew, make disciples of all nations. God's at work in doing that. And unless you are Jewish, you are a part of what God is accomplishing in this specific Uh, thought of reaching Gentiles. And so while it's unusual in the book, uh, in the Old Testament, to find outreaches uh, to the pagans, if you will, the Gentiles, the Old Testament is more come to Israel to to find faith. The New Testament is more go to make uh, disciples of the nations. Yet here's one of those cases where God was reaching out to this evil, wicked, cruel nation to reach them with saving knowledge of who he was. That's the heart of God. So if God wants to reach people with his grace, those who do not believe, he first has to work in the heart of those of us who do believe. 
If he is reaching those who don't believe in him, he always does it by touching first the hearts of us who do believe in him. Verses 1 and 2, the, the clear understanding of Jonah was God wants to show his grace and compassion. And he was, he was uh, defying, really, that, that part of the character of God. And what Jonah surprisingly seems to ignore in verse 3 is that God is omnipresent. And so it says, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. It it seems uh, ridiculous that a prophet would think he could do that. There are three uh, cities mentioned here. Uh, we've, in addition, in Second Kings, saw his hometown. So let's get a little bit of a geographical perspective here of his, his journey. He is from Gath-Hefer, uh, midway there in, in Israel. So, so the nation of Israel with both northern and southern kingdoms would be just a little rectangle there, uh, uh, kind of over Gath, Hefer, and Jaffa, and, and Jerusalem in between. So he, he's, he's called by God to go some 500 miles northeast to Nineveh. That's where I want you to go. Instead, what he does is goes 50 miles southwest to board a ship in Joppa, but that wasn't his eventual destination. Rather, he is wanting to go some 2,500 miles west to what is actually south. Uh, west Spain to the city of Tarshish. That's how desperate he was to, quote, get away from God, that he would go some five times as far in the opposite direction as God had directed him to go. There's almost like some theological irony in verse 3. It is written from the perspective of Jonah, obviously not God. The very idea or the phrase is to flee from God implies that you can flee from God, <laughs> which, which you can't. So Jonah was attempting the impossible task of escaping the omnipresence of God. What was his thought process as he, as he goes to Joppa, as he gets on the ship, as he, or as he pays the fare? What is he thinking? It's remarkable because of all that Jonah actually knew. He was a believer. He was a believer who was well-versed in the scriptures to be a prophet. He was, he was a believer versed in the scriptures, called of God to a specific ministry which he had already fulfilled to the king of, of Israel. He's a prophet who is called of God, who has ministered to others because he has heard the voice of God. And so, and so unlike so many Old Testament believers who had to simply believe what they were told or read to from the scripture about God, he had experienced the voice of God in his life. In fact, we know later on in our study next week, we'll see where he declares, I worship the Lord, verse 9, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. He knows exactly who God is. And, and yet, in this state of disobedience, it's like 
All of his theology is out the window. Why? Why would he forget such basic truths as the omnipresence of God? Well, we we discovered that in chapter 4. His spiritual state was one of anger. Anger against God and his call. Anger at the, gra- at the Syrians and that God would show them grace. He was saying, unaddressed anger can alter our mind like a horrible theological drug to where we don't believe things about God that we actually know to be true about God. I think really any, any unaddressed sin is going to confuse and cloud our thinking. And Jonah would believe the theologically absurdity that he could flee from God. If we, if we are... If we are clinging to some area of sin in our life, don't be surprised if we are beginning to doubt the nature of God. Cling to sin, you will doubt his forgiveness. And you you will buy into the, 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 I'm a failure that God has no interest in. You, you You won't believe in God's grace. It can cloud your thinking, which is why we have to continually go back to Scripture and say, no, what is God like regardless of how I feel? And so Jonah would rediscover the truth of God's omnipresence. As David would write, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. You cannot get away from God, is what David was saying. God is omni, all or everywhere, present. Actually, in the opening verses of Psalm 139, 1 through 6, David is reviewing another theological truth, and that is that God is omniscient. He knows my thoughts from afar. He knows everything we think. So he knows everything that I think. He knows he is everywhere that I am. And so, so I need to respond to this, this, this continuous, pervasive uh, presence of God with me. God's omnipresence is not the same as an idea we sometimes get from seeping into our culture that uh, God is everything. Uh, it, I think even in our phrase we say Mother Nature, you know, with almost godlike sense. It's an Eastern mystical idea or, or that... Uh, even the talking trees or whatever that gets into our, our, our kids' movies or whatever, it's kind of like God's in the tree. God, that's just idolatry. That's, just, that's pantheism as in all. God is everything. No, God is not everything, but God is everywhere. And there's a big difference because he is the creator. This is the creation. And he is separate from his creation, but he is never absent from his creation. And so God never needs to go anywhere because he's already there. And that is what Jonah was ignoring. This brings us great assurance, first of all. And so David would continue to write in Psalm 139, If I take the wings of the dawn, I will dwell, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. Times of uh, fear of darkness 
whether it's literal or physical, and the, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. That's a good, that's a good couple of verses to, to help your kids when they're afraid of the dark, frankly. God is with us in the dark. There is no way we can get away from the presence of God. He's there to assure us. So if we are criticized or bullied or, or hurt, that, <coughs> that as, as, as uh, contrary as that might seem, God in his love is with us at the hardest of times. Christian pastors right now are being uh, imprisoned in, in China. Certain church uh, organizations are being, the leaders are being taken. God is with them. And we need to have that foundational theological understanding of the omnipresent assurances, assurances through the omnipresence of God. But the omnipresence of God is not only for our assurance, it is also for our accountability. If he's there to assure us, he is also there to hold us accountable. Jeremiah, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? In other words, am I, am, you think I'm just here but not there? Jonah, that's, that, that's Jonah in a nutshell, even though Jeremiah writes maybe a hundred years later. Who can hide in the secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So I'm everywhere, both in terms of assurance, but also in terms of accountability. Do we have a true understanding of the fact that God knows all our thoughts? God is with us wherever we are. There's a little children's song that says, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And then verses of your feet where you walk, or your, your, uh, your, your mouth, what you say, and ears, what you hear. Uh, God's presence is teaching children about God's presence. I might differ with the song a little bit that God doesn't even need to look down. <laughs> He's there. He is, he is there. He is present. And we are tempted to, to yell at the driver that cuts in front of us. He's there when we are holding bitter thoughts and want to say spiteful things to someone we love. He is there when we're scrolling through options for entertainment on our streaming devices. He is there. He is there not only for assurance in hospital rooms, but for accountability in every other room that we find ourselves. He's there when we travel. He's there when we're home. He is there for our assurance. He is there for our accountability. Jonah, who knew God so well, was able to somehow ignore or forget what he knew about God, and he buys fair to go to Tarshish. He's, he, he's like this pouting child who, 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 whose mom has asked him, you know, go take out the trash or something and runs the other direction, ignores what he's been told. Just as a child can and must be uh, corrected for refusing to do what someone in authority has asked, so God will hold us accountable. We can refuse God's will we can never escape God's presence. As Jonah headed away, 
he was not only quitting this task, he was quitting the ministry. He was leaving uh, the call of God on his life. When God asked him to be a prophet, to go and bring such welcome news to a wicked king, he says, I'm in. But when God asked him to go and tell the Assyrians they need to turn to me in repentance, he says, I know what you're going to do. You're going to show grace. And I want no part of it. I don't want to communicate your grace. This is Jonah's most serious error. I know you are gracious. I know your character. But I don't want to be a part of it. I'm going to Tarshish. Tarshish is mentioned one other place in uh, at least one, a couple places. Second uh, Chronicles 9.21, uh, parallel with 1 Kings 10.22, it says that Solomon, once every three years, the ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. 1 Kings 22, it seems to be also referring to Tarshish as being a place from which you could get gold. It was a prosperous uh, metropolitan area. How did Jonah choose it? Well, he, he could have just gone, maybe he went down to Joppa and just says, what's the soonest you can get me the farthest away? <laughs> and maybe it was Tarshish. Could have been. Something tells me that he picked it. Because it's far away, but because I am going to go and live my life in ease. I want to be at a place where I don't have to worry about the problems of Israel. I don't want to listen to God. I'm just going to go do my own thing and enjoy the rest of my life. And, of course, he was avoiding the call of God in his life. In fact, he's a, he was avoiding the greatest privilege, one of the great demonstrations of God's grace to him. Do we recognize God's grace to us when God prompts us to serve him? Do we recognize the goodness of God in those nudges that we can, we can know in some way, this is what God wants me to do. Has someone invited you to, to uh, an opportunity that uh, is... Now, not, everybody, not everything that people invite you to is God's will, all right? <laughs> you need to discern that, maybe with Christian friends and, and, and mentors. But when you have that sense that this is what God wants me to do, have you resisted God's voice? Do you realize that, that when God urges us towards some type of ministry, it is not an obligation from guilt. It is a demonstration of God's grace. Romans 12.6 says, We all have different gifts according to the grace given us. The gifts of serving, he goes on to list then gifts of serving and, and so forth, different ways of, of serving Christ with a spiritual gift. When God calls us, that is grace. So God had grace to show to Nineveh, and he had grace to show to Jonah, and Jonah was resisting both forms of grace. The grace in his life to communicate the grace of God to others. And so the bottom line is that Jonah did not share the heart of God. 
do we? Second Peter 3.9 describes the heart of God for lost people. He, God, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is the heart of God. John 3.16, God so loved the world, all people in it, that he gave his son to make this, this complete atonement for the sins of all the world so that he can offer a gift to those who will believe. That's God's heart. Second Corinthians is one of the places where we are invited, urged by Paul to embrace God's heart. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we, we think of, of how our life is transformed to know that our sins are forgiven. We can be forever in heaven with him. Amazing. That's the grace of God. But that grace of God is to motivate and compel us to the second evidence of the grace of God in our life. And that is of jumping into and embracing the ministry of communicating God's grace to others. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God's going to work in us in order to bring the gospel to others. Therefore, we are, his, we are ambassadors for Christ, make, God making his appeal through us. Ambassadors are to communicate the message of the leadership of the country they represent. And we are making God's, God's making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That is our message. Do we share God's heart? Do we care about the people God cares about? Do we see people the way God sees them? Or is that guy just an annoying neighbor? Maybe you've lived next door to someone for years. This is not my experience, by the way. Maybe you lived next door to somebody, or, or maybe it's working next door to somebody, but you lived next door to somebody, that just you just don't like them. There was that thing about the fence, you know, how many years ago? And their attitude. And then there's their dogs, you know. and All these kind of things begin to build up where we just don't like them. And with that comes basically the attitude of Jonah. I don't care if they get saved or not. Because I don't like them. Are there certain people that if uh, they were to walk through the doors of the church and surprise you some Sunday, you'd almost like be awkward because you didn't invite them and you, weren't even, you, aren't even, you don't know what to do with it because you, you'd never thought of them as maybe having a spiritual need or interest. Because God is working in your heart and you're struggling with your heart. Do I share God's heart for this person for whatever reason? This is a message of God's grace and we will see how then God works in his heart. But here's, here's some of the ways we can tell if we are embracing God's heart or not. Number one, do I share God's heart for those I know who are not trusting in Christ as their Savior? A couple of evidences. Number one, do I pray for them? Do I pray for them? Because there is, there is something that's going to change in our heart as we begin to pray for people that we might think may not know Christ as their Savior as we do. Our heart changes as we pray for them. Second thing is that as we begin to pray for them, we are interested in a relationship with them. 
So do I take interest in them? Do I visit with them? God will like alert us to opportunities as we pray for someone to then develop a relationship. God works through relationships. And then would we even seek find and find ways to help or encourage them? See, the gospel is, is so often caught before it is taught. And are we, are we on that path of, of, of communicating a God of grace? And then God will use us. So do I welcome the opportunity to invite someone then to church or to share the gospel or go with me to the No Regrets Conference or to the, to the women's retreat or to an event or to, to coffee? We will, as we pray for someone and God puts them on our heart, then the details begin to be guided by the Spirit of God and we can become those who communicate uh, the grace of God and trust Him with the results of that. I mentioned if we began the privilege of seeing some of the students and staff I worked with in the Philippines serving Christ these past couple of weeks. You know what's going on right now at Fort Wilderness? Right now, there are 40 young people from Open Door Bible Church and friends of youth from Open Door Bible Church who are up at Fort Wilderness. And, 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 and I was talking to Pastor Nate this week. There, there's a handful or more of, 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 of young people there who we don't know if they've put their faith in Christ or not. Every Wednesday night in our, in our, in our, in our middle school and high school ministries, people are inviting friends who need to know the gospel. Every weekend in our services, there are those who come with or, or show up that may not know Christ as their Savior. Do we realize the opportunities that God has given us to be communicators of his grace, to be channels through which he communicates that the reconciliation has been accomplished, that we can simply by faith in Christ have eternal life and we become those who are ambassadors of that message. Let's pray and then we're going to celebrate the core of that message as the men would join me here for the communion service. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us and the stories of grace that we might personally have uh, thought of, of how you have directed in our life to hear the gospel. I pray that uh, we as a church would keep focused on our desire and your desire to reach people with the gospel. We commit ourselves to that ongoing process until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.